we must constantly look at things in a different way. The Healthcare Education Transformation Podcast was created by two physical therapists out of the desire to learn more about the different educational roles in physical therapy and healthcare and how healthcare education works by talking with educational leaders and people with different perspectives within physical therapy and across interdisciplinary lines on how education can be improved to disrupt the status quo of healthcare education. This is our journey, and thanks for listening. Are you a third-year physical therapy student that excels on tests when you have study guides, checklists, and deadlines? With all of the information available about how to prepare for the NPTE, it's easy to get disorganized and not feel prepared going into the big day. NPTE Prep Success is an online course that provides PT students easy-to-use study guides and step-by-step guidance through the NPTE preparation. To learn more, visit kylericeprep.com. Thank you again all for your continued support, and now for the show. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Healthcare Education Transformation Podcast. I'm F. Scott Field, and I'm joined by my fellow co-hosts, Stephanie Wyrock and Brandon Pone. And today we have the pleasure of talking with recent doctor of physical therapy and former data analysis, Mike Mocker. Mike is a recent graduate of the College of Staten Island's Doctorate of Physical Therapy program. Before PT school, he worked in the real estate finance industry. Uh, Prior to that, he earned a Bachelor's of Science degree in economics from Pennsylvania State University's Smeals College of Business. And I actually had the pleasure of meeting this young man at CSM this year, and, and it was an absolute pleasure. And I can't wait to see which direction your career heads, Mike. But your story is rather unique uh, with how you actually kind of got into physical therapy. And for our listeners who are not aware, do you think you could maybe tell us your story of how you kind of got into physical therapy from where you were? Uh, sure. Um, so uh, I, it's kind of a weird story. In some ways, it's similar to a lot of people. In some ways, it's very different. So um, like many DPT uh, students and graduates, I was once a patient. Um, but in my case, I had a surgery on my hand as a child, um, and I went to a really bad physical therapist. My mom tried to find a physical therapist in our community that would take our insurance and was close to us. Um, Unfortunately, he didn't know how to treat kids and he didn't know how to treat hands. So um, uh, I still have some hypomobility in my wrist and I still have some um, lingering restrictions, but um, Overall, it, it wasn't a great experience, and I always thought about, like, what would it be like if I went to a good physical therapist for this, somebody who actually knew what they were doing? Um, I was a little intimidated by the prospect of physical therapy school originally. Um, my uh, undergrad program had a um, combined accelerate program associated with Jefferson, so you could do three years at the Abington campus and three years at Thomas Jefferson's ZPT program. Um, that sounded really intimidating. All the people getting in were like really top students. Um, but eventually after graduating and um, kind of trying to the whole cubicle thing, I thought that was just miserable. And I realized like I should just try, take some classes, shadow and see how I like it. I went to a workers comp clinic, which is supposedly by many people considered like the worst place to go. That was one of the coolest experiences that I've had. I saw somebody run a year after they got run over by a truck. So to see that and like see that crazy things are possible really got me inspired. I did well in my prereqs and um, I applied to a few programs that I thought were affordable and I somehow got into the College of Staten Islands program. 
I have always thought, Mike, that if I were to ever go back to undergrad and get another degree, I would totally go get my degree in economics. I think that economics is a really cool field, especially with some of the data uh, analysis you can learn in economics. So can you tell us a little bit about what your bachelor's degree in economics consisted of and what classes you took for that? Okay, sure. Um, so there's the uh, general requirements, whatever the school has. Um, I took some business classes, um, but for my major specifically, I had to take a lot of statistics classes and a lot of classes emphasizing foundational principles of economics. These are microeconomics, macroeconomics. Um, there were some electives I took, um, managerial economics, which is studying how like organizations um, handle their employees, how, what incentives uh, can be created to um, encourage employees to do the right thing or the wrong thing. We studied how um, the banking industry often has poor incentives for people. And so as a result, they often break the rules. Um, unfortunately, uh, we also um, had other electives. I studied healthcare economics, which was really interesting. It opened my eyes to all the costs associated with healthcare. So yeah, there were a lot of classes, um, but primarily in statistics and um, these like kind of like dry principles of economics courses. That's interesting. And Mike, how long did it? How long does it normally take to get that degree in economics? Uh, standard four years if you do the right things. Um, Unfortunately, uh, if you do the bachelor's of science option, there's a class called uh, econometrics. And um, at Penn State, at the time I was going there, about like a third of the students would fail that class and then have to retake it. And so um, some people took five, six. Sometimes they had to switch out of the major. Um, yeah, but you can finish in four. I did in four. Um, I don't know. Some people don't necessarily do it that way, but yeah. Interesting. And especially, it's interesting how you kind of really said how you learned from how that degree really entailed a combination of statistics, macro, microeconomics, um, managerial aspects, learning more about the banking industry and the poor incentives with that, but also about healthcare economics. And, you know, I'm really curious in terms of what do you think are the most important aspects based on what you've learned from being an analyst and what you've learned from getting your economics degree? that you think healthcare as a whole needs to incorporate either more of or be more aware of? Uh, that's, a, that's a good question. Um, so I think healthcare employees need to be more aware of the structure of their organizations, um, need to understand the um, third parties that specifically insurance companies, um, need to understand how how these uh, organizations function together and how they exchange inf information and interact because unfortunately we have a lot of restrictions and a lot of students don't quite realize things when they're in school and then they come out and whether it's uh, MD residents or DPT grads or nurses, there's a lot of complaints about healthcare, the insurance industry, complaints about other professions. We need to really learn more about how each party uh, in, uh, should work together and what we all should do to make this process as efficient as possible. Yeah, that's a great answer, Mike. And I think, you know, that's part of the reason we, we started this podcast, right, was to kind of break down some of the silos and really, you know, reach across the aisle from profession to profession and try to figure out how we can all make things better. Um, but, you know, as an English major myself, I, I, I kind of value this this next question here. But 
you know, do you think that a BS in economics degree is valuable for students as an undergrad major prior to entering the healthcare profession? Why or why not? It kind of depends what you're going to do with it. So I actually would summarize my major as a major about problem solving, because that's really what it is. It's you get a lot of different situations. A lot of classes are very different and you have to solve problems. So that can be very useful. Um, it, but if you're not going to use those skills and you're not going to use that knowledge and apply it, um, it's going to be completely useless. So it really depends. Like, you know, you just said you're an English major. Well, communication, being able to write, being able to read, being able to understand people, it's going to make a difference. Same thing. But if you don't use that and you just kind of forget everything you learned and don't think about it, it's going to be useless. Yeah, side note, I actually thought that my English major would help me with my writing when it came to like my dissertation and stuff, but scientific writing, completely different. It's a whole nother beast. So useful to some extent, but not as much as I thought it would be. You had mentioned, Mike, that your the program that you graduated from was a city government-based program. Can you tell us what that means? How is that different from a public or private university DPT program? I mean, I would classify it as like a public program, but um, basically the City University of New York is said to be the largest uh, degree granting institution in the country. Um, there are more colleges under that organization than any other. And the there are two DPT programs under that institution, specifically Hunter College and the College of Staten Island. So um, basically what that entails is the state and the city have officials that are selected by the governor and the mayor um, to run the organization. And then you have like a lot of government involvement with that. There's state funding and city funding involved with uh, the CUNY. So um, that's why, that's how it's different. It's heavily subsidized and they're not really motivated by profits as much as say a private school. So tuition is really, really low. Gotcha. And I think, you know, Mike, to kind of just get some perspective, just because you just recently graduated from physical therapy school, but how is your DPT education structured in regards to your didactic and your clinical education to give some context on your program and your experience? Okay. Um, so there are six semesters of courses. Um, they just switched it, actually. Um, the new incoming class started in the summer, but previously we were starting in the fall. When I started, it was in the fall. Um, and then um, you have four clinicals, um, two during your, like in between the didactic curriculum, and then two after. Um, the last two are the longest. Uh, one is 10 weeks and one is nine weeks. Um, the previous ones are six and eight or nine, or possibly 10 if you go to a specific sites. Yeah. Gotcha. So how, in terms of with the didactic material and stuff, how is your guys's um, coursework spread out? Like, what did you guys cover in that first year or second year? And kind of how did that progress from that point of view? Okay. Uh, we're really neuro heavy. So we had neuro right, like almost right away, like second semester, we started seeing neuro, um, really advanced neuro. So um, we started uh, musculoskeletal in the third semester, kind of like an introductory class and then upper extremity in the fourth and then lower extremity in the fifth, and then spine in the sixth. Um, they are switching that. So now all of that is happening earlier, but in our case, it was a little bit later. Um, anatomy, um, goniometry, all that stuff was in the 
um, early, like the first semester. Um, we did have kinesiology spread out between the first and second semester. So you got upper extremity in the first semester and lower extremity in the second semester. Awesome, Mike. And were you able to participate in any research or other unique opportunities while you were at school? Uh, yeah, it was mandated that we participate in research. Um, so we, we, uh, I was um, assigned a research advisor um, and a group, and essentially, um, we worked. We, I actually got to work under our current, the program's current chair. Uh, we did neuro uh, research. Specifically, what we did was an experiment on a human cadaver. So we sent a, a current on a, a direct current simulation on a human cadaver and measured how how and where everything goes and how what's at what level of current does everything reach certain points. So that was uh, my experience in regards to research. And what about clinical rotations? What were they like? Um, so clinicals, that's kind of like, uh, that's an interesting thing. Um, so I had, um, I unfortunately wasn't able to do an inpatient clinical. Uh, I did a skilled nursing clinical and three outpatient clinicals. Um, I was really lucky with my the skilled nursing facility, Bedford um, Nursing and Rehab Center. That place was amazing. They had an Alter-G treadmill. They had like all sorts of new equipment. They had like a video gaming rehab system, Gintronics, if you've ever heard of it. That was really cool. So I got to try out a bunch of things. Things uh, I got to do um, Doppler, ultrasound Doppler. So to do like to measure MAP on people with LVAD, I got to learn all about that. So I got a lot of uh, great exposure in my first clinical. And then um, my last three clinicals were all different. Um, first one was like a regular outpatient. Sec uh, then the next one was like pain uh, focused in orthopedics. My um, CI was a graduate of Delaware's residency program for orthopedics. And then he worked for the print. Well, then he worked for the Prince of Saudi Arabia. So he got to do some pr pretty cool things. And he was like, teaching me a bunch of stuff. And then my last one was with uh, Sandy Hilton and Sarah Haig at Entropy Physiotherapy covering pelvic health and persistent pain. Wow, it sounds like you had set, had a really great culmination of differences of experiences. And I kind of want to touch on your last clinical with Sandy and Sarah. We've had them on the podcast before. They're good friends of ours. And I know that you're also very active on social media. Um, tell us a little bit about how you made that clinical with Sandy and Sarah at Entropy Physical Therapy happen? And could you provide some advice to current students that are maybe looking for a clinical rotation outside of their current list of sites? Okay, yeah, so um, basically um, my pro at my program, they were kind of open to us doing stuff like getting information for the director because um, as a small program, we only have 20 students on average per class. Um, it's kind of hard to set things up. So if we could get them information, that was appreciated. And um, so I was trying from the very beginning to get good clinicals. Uh, I set up my last two clinicals. Um, um, so with Sandy and Sarah, I first uh, connected with them when they were on, with, well, first they talked to Sarah via Twitter, but then they offered a scholarship for CSM 2017, which I submitted for and I won. And then through talking with them and then asking them like if they had any availability, I was able to connect them with my program and through a very lengthy and arduous process, we were able to eventually establish a clinical. Um, there was a lot of back and forth. 
my school is very um, peculiar with that. Um, our directors of clinical education changed twice um, during my time in school. So uh, it, was a, it was an interesting challenge, but we worked it out. Um, and in terms of advice, um, my advice is like really aggressively do your research and and try to really like, in my opinion, you have to push your director of clinical education if you want to get a good clinical site, because a lot of students um, tend to be passive with that and then they don't get the results that they want. And it's, it's you know, you have to try to take control of the situation. Obviously, I know some directors of clinical education would get upset if you contact sites directly and try to set something up without like getting them involved. Um, I've heard that um, and I wouldn't suggest necessarily doing that, um, but I would say you have to be pretty aggressive with your communication in terms of like constantly staying in touch cons with your director of clinical education, make sure that they're reaching out, make sure they're doing stuff because unless they're motivated, they're just going to place a phone call in a lot of cases. And you know, who knows how that's going to end. Yeah, Mike, I think that's a great point. I think you bring up a lot of good things there in terms of really being your own self-advocate. So really pushing, you know, pushing the people in terms of making sure that this stuff happens and following through and fighting for yourself. I mean, not being overly aggressive because you're right. Some programs, some ACCEs might be a little bit more open than others, perhaps. So I, I definitely can see that. So, you know, looking back now, with you graduating now and you start you getting more of some clinical experience, looking back, what do you feel like were some of the biggest strengths of your, your program? Well, one thing is definitely cost. <laughs> That's why I went there. Um, the cost is fantastic compared to I was before I started before we started this, I was looking into the cost of programs. And I was looking at well-known programs and some of them were costing like a hundred and seventy thousand dollars or hundred twenty thousand, hundred forty just tuition and fees. So um my program cost me under forty grand. Um so that's a huge plus. Uh we did learn some useful neuro techniques. So if you're gonna do neuro, um we got to work with people with spinal cord injury. We got to do, um, we did a full course on PNF. We did um, a lot of hands-on neuro stuff. So um, that's really good. Um, and that did help because um, in my last two clinicals, we incorporate a lot of neuro-based concepts into the orthopedics realm. Yeah, Mike. So looking back, what do you feel might have been some of the weaknesses or areas of improvement that your DPT program could undergo? And how do you think those weaknesses should be addressed? Well, um, I was uh, when I was in the program, my program was kind of in a weird transition period. The uh, chair retired um, during the program. Um, uh, they're trying to go through. They're going to be accredited. They're going through accreditation again in 2019, I believe. So um, there's a lot of things, um, faculty left, you know, they gotta, they gotta get new faculty. So, um, I mean, they're really working on beefing up cardiopulmonary and um, trying to address any concerns. We had musculoskeletal a little bit late compared to other programs. Like I remember I was on a clinical where there was a student from LIU and she had already covered spine and I hadn't um, for my second, before my second clinical. So she could do, some stuff that I couldn't. Now, would I have used the stuff that she learned in spine? No, but still that helps with understanding where your CI comes from, understanding like some basics. So um, that stuff, they're kind of addressing it. They're moving that timetable up. Um, and again, there's limitations because it's a city-based school. 
they don't have the resources of a private program that can just spend because they're charging 50K per student with 40 plus students in the program. So Mike, we've been talking a lot about kind of how your program is unique with cost and um, how would you want to improve your program? What are the strengths of your program? If you could say one thing to all DPT faculty members, what would you say to them? I would say always remember that um, the person you're addressing, think of the people you're addressing in class as patients in a way that if you can't, um, if you're not reaching them with your message, don't get frustrated at them. Change your approach and adapt to them because I think I've seen some of that where they don't really do that and they get frustrated with the students. And I think um, that would really benefit all faculty members to realize it's not up to the students to necessarily, I mean, they have a responsibility since they're paying, but it's your responsibility to reach them too. I think that's a really interesting, a really, really important point because I mean, again, I think this goes down to both ways. I mean, there's student responsibilities, but then there's also faculty responsibilities to tailor the message because at the end of the day, I mean, I love how the Academy with their motto is every PT, PTA is an educator. So it, it really comes down to, like you said, really being able to adjust the message for the audience of that individual, depending on where they're at and in a way that really makes sense. And, and when we do that with patients too, sometimes we're not effective and we switch gears. So, I mean, I think at the end of the day, if we're paying all that money for that, I think students do deserve to have the message tailored to them in the best way so that they can learn the most. So I think that's a really good point. So Mike, we like to ask this question to every single guest at the end of each episode, because we are just so curious to what everyone's thoughts are. And the question that we ask is, if you could change one aspect of healthcare education, whether that be DPT or otherwise, which aspect would you change and how would you change it? It's hard to say. I mean, one thing I would say, I, I don't know if other people would say this, but um, maybe like a disclaimer about the process, because whether it's in medicine where you're, you know, you're sacrificing a long period of your life for medicine, um, that's grueling. I have friends who, who are about to finish and they're like in their early 30s and, you know, or whether it's DPT where it's hard or dentistry where it's like super expensive. Um, it doesn't really matter. Um, just creating, like having some kind of disclaimer explaining the process and the cost and what you're really looking at in terms of the job market coming out, that would be really helpful because I think um, a lot of people are not necessarily um, skilled at looking that stuff up and they are kind of unaware and nobody really talks about it enough until it's too late. So that would be my thing. Yeah, I like that, Mike. That's actually a really good idea. Like have somebody before class starts say, all right, you know, we're going to read through this. You all have to read this and understand that this is what you're signing up for for the next three years. It's, you know, X amount of semesters of courses, so many courses per semester, this amount of clinical rotations, which lasts eight to 12 weeks. Um, you know, when you get out, you could have debt upwards of $200,000. Uh, you know, repayments look like X amount of dollars per month. Yeah, you know, if you really outline that for people, I'm curious as to how many would actually go through with it, um, you know, based on the return on investment. And I think you're right. I don't think enough people do the due diligence to look that stuff up. They just get into it and they roll with it. So, well, I still remember when I went on PT interviews, a lot of the 
programs would say, oh, you know, it's going to cost you this much to go to our program, but it's all worth it. You're going to, it's going to pay off in the end. I mean, you don't, I still think that unless you are raised to really think about money, you're going to go into school just being like, oh, I really want to do this. So I'm going to do it anyway. And you're not going to think about cost until it's almost time to graduate. Because I mean, they, I was told that and I never thought anything of it. Yeah. I mean, if you're trying to sell your program for sure, you're going to say, yeah, oh, yeah, it's worth it, which, you know, it may very well be, but I think it's, it's just very dependent. Uh, and again, if you're not doing the research on which programs are out there and which ones cost how much and, and what the return on investment looks like, yeah, it may not be worth it actually. So that's a really great point, Steph. And Mike, you know, I can't thank you enough for taking your time to come on the show tonight and, and chat with us about all this stuff. And, you know, like I said, I just can't wait to see which direction your career heads from here. We're really excited for you. But could you tell people where they can find you online or on social media if they have any follow-up questions or just want to chat? Uh, sure. Um, they can find me on Twitter. That's probably the best way. Um, at M-I-K-E-M-A-K-H-E-R. It's kind of a mouthful, but that's my name. Um, so uh, you can find me on Twitter that way. I'm, I'm on a lot. Um, just reach out to me and um, we can talk. Um, that's, that's pretty much it. Well, perfect, man. Well, thank you again so much for all your time and efforts. And we look forward to seeing what your career does as you unfold. Is looking forward to seeing that. But again, thanks for coming on, man. Always a pleasure. Happy to, to, what's called, to come on. Thank you very much for your time. And um, I really appreciate the positive messages. Access to healthcare is one of the largest issues facing both providers and patients, as millions of people worldwide lack timely and affordable access to healthcare. Anywhere Healthcare, a telehealth platform, is a simple, low-cost option for providers and patients that eliminates the barriers to access to all kinds of healthcare. To find out more, check out anywhere.healthcare, which is available on our show notes. And if you use the code HET in all caps when you email to sign up, you'll save 25% off the total cost. Thank you for attending class today. And we hope that you learned something and gained value from the content. If you'd like to schedule office hours with us, feel free to add us on Twitter at HET Podcast, on Instagram, HET Podcast, on Facebook, the Healthcare Education Transformation Podcast, and the homepage, healthcareeducationtransformationpodcast.com. And for those of you following along in the syllabus, extra credit can be obtained by liking us, sharing us, and leaving a review. Let's continue our journey up Mount Educational Success as lifelong learners.